This is a social journalism for health podcast from the team at Crokey News. Crokey Voices. I left my home where muddy waters flow. And I've been as far as I could go. The music of the Songbirds program helping prisoners find a new voice and new skills behind bars. How important is rehabilitation within our prisons and in a wider debate about reforming the system in the light of the threat of COVID-19 and the renewed focus on Indigenous incarceration rates following the death of another black man at the hands of American police? Hi, I'm Kate Carrigan. And I'm Megan Williams, and we're coming to you from the land of the Gadigal Wongal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging generations of leaders of strong Aboriginal people to come. This time around, in the second part of our Justice COVID series, thanks to the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas, what is the way ahead for change in our prison system? It's obvious that change is required. In my experience of working in prisoner health programs for the last 25 years, things have gotten worse. Prison rates are double what they were when I first started out. And we know that even though Aboriginal people are around, what, 2%, 4.5% of the population in New South Wales, we're about 28 to 30% of the population in prison. And it's just kept on going up even after the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody. That's right. There have been 400 or more deaths since the Royal Commission. And that's despite great projects like Crokey's Just Justice, publishing 90 articles from 70 authors, many of which offered solutions about how to both reduce prison rates and also stop people going to prison in the first place. Some of the things we'll be looking at this time around... And hearing from a man who found painting and poetry in prison a way to start healing and find his voice. I guess when I do it, it's, it kind of helps me connect back to my uh, identity, my culture and my Aboriginality because that had that taken away from me when I was young, not knowing anything about myself and, and who I was and where I was from. That really helps me connect back to to those three things, yeah. We'll hear more from Marksy, an artist involved in the Torch program in Victoria later. But let's start with Change the Record. Uh, my name is Cheryl Axelby. I'm a national co-chair of Change the Record, a Aboriginal-led justice coalition. What we are trying to do is reduce the incarceration rates of Aboriginal tribes to other peoples across Australia. So what's happening with those incarceration rates? They've kept on getting steadily higher, haven't they? Over the last 10 years, we've seen at least an 88% increase. We only make up 2% of the general population, yet 30% of our people make up the prison population, despite being convicted of only minor, low-risk offending. We also have the highest remand rates of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who are quite often doing longer term on remand than they would actually if they were receiving a sentence. The other aspect that we're dealing with at the moment as well is our children make up only 7% of the general population, but 54% of those um, uh, make up the detention centres. So with these numbers... We have to look at the system itself. You know, the blame game, blaming Aboriginal families needs to stop. 
I think we need to invest more in early intervention prevention and putting money back into communities because poverty, systemic racism and over-policing are the causes of our people coming into the system. Well, talking about that, what changes would you like to see? And do you think that this increased focus now on incarceration rates, given COVID-19 and given what's happening in the United States, could give the impetus for change? Well, we are really hoping that it does. You know, Australia has a really poor record of Aboriginal deaths in custody. Since the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths in Custody ended out in 1991, there were 339 recommendations and we've seen very minimal implementation of those recommendations. We've had a whole number of reports that continually highlight the same issues that were in recommendations and the reports and we've had 432 Aboriginal people die in custody since 1991. We have to start looking at critical goodwill and we need the rest of Australian society to stand with us. If you could see changes happen tomorrow, what are the main ones that you'd like to see put in place straight away? Well, the main ones that we want to see, of course, is a, a commitment to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Also, the countless independent investigations and all the coronial inquests that have been held with Aboriginal deaths and custodies have also come with recommendations. We're still not getting the buy-in from the government to implement them. So that's number one. Number two, we need to end the mass imprisonment of our people by repealing the punitive bail laws the mandatory sentencing laws, which we see a lot happening in NT, and also the the decriminalising of public drunkenness, which has happened in most states and territories. One of the other things that we've been really running campaigns is Free Our Future campaign, which is about raising the age of legal responsibility from age 10 to at least 14 years. If we did that and actually put more programme development and looking at alternatives to imprisonment, evidence has shown there are greater successes and opportunities because once they enter the justice system, it's a bit like quicksand, they get stuck, they find it very hard to get out of it. And then the last one that we ask for is to end the abuse, torture and solitary confinement of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in police and prison cells. Those things could make a big difference if we could actually introduce those. Now to the US, which has erupted with protests over the death of black man George Floyd in police custody. Bob Houston is a former director of the Douglas County Department of Corrections. And I ask him if it's time, given the rethink brought about by COVID-19, including the early release of some low-risk offenders, to look again at the high incarceration rates for black Americans and minority groups. The people that often find themselves inside of correctional facilities come from economically disadvantaged areas and the types of crimes that are committed by people in those neighborhoods are the ones that are more visible. The crime options available to people who are poor are very visible, uh, whether that be a theft, a robbery, a crime against person of some sort. So, yes, I mean, there are things previous to the justice system uh, intervening uh, that can, can really help the schools, the communities, Education is really an opportunity to, to, to be an equalizer of, of sorts. And then as you go through the justice system, are there things, opportunities in the justice system, such as drug courts and youth offender courts and mental health courts? Are those available options to keep people out of incarceration? Most of the work happens before it even gets to the door of corrections. Is it time, do you think, for an increased emphasis on education and retraining? Because it's an expensive option, isn't it, putting people behind bars? Yes, it is expensive, and it's, it's money that could really serve a lot of prevention practices. One thing that uh, to be known about is that prison directors, prison wardens, prison case managers have always been interested in reform. Reform should happen every day. 
this gives us another opportunity to take pause and say, uh, are there some things that we can learn here about incarceration and the use of incarceration? And um, to only lock up people that are a direct threat to the public or are multiple offenders. You know, it's really hard to determine what constitutes a low-risk offender that could be released because of COVID-19. If you have a low-risk offender, but that person's previous offenses were sexual assaults or drug dealing and other types of crimes, it's not always the present offense that tells you about the person. And you have to take each individual and each set of circumstances and try to figure out what is best. Greg Barnes, I'm a barrister and uh, a spokesman for the Australian Lawyers Alliance. Well, we're certainly more broadly within the law looking at how we do things moving forward. And you'd hate to see this opportunity, this crisis wasted when it comes to the level of incarceration in Australia, which is worryingly high, particularly amongst Indigenous offenders. There's no doubt that within the context of COVID, there have been a number of people released on bail and also given parole at the earliest available opportunity. We haven't seen a rise in offending. And what that's telling us is that we ought to be releasing more people from our prisons and ensuring that they have strong community support because prison is extraordinarily expensive. It's a case in Australia, like the United States and the United Kingdom, that taxpayers don't get value for money because it doesn't have the deterrent effect that politicians think that it might have. Then you think that these low-level offences, people caught up and put in inside for those reasons, there should be a move maybe to more home detention, to more community intervention programs? Well, home detention is very useful for people who have family and need, for example, to be able to work or alternatively their carers for older parents. And increasingly now we're seeing the case that uh, you'll get a person who's an offender who might also be the full-time carer or sole carer for an elderly parent. We should also, though, be looking at community-based sanctions. Community-based sanctions are cheaper. They're actually harder for many offenders because they do require an ongoing commitment to rehabilitation and reform. And they have much higher rates when it comes to successful outcomes. That is, people not re-offending within two years of completing the order. Do you think that one area where they could particularly apply is with First Nations offenders? Do you think these sorts of measures should be particularly targeted there? You would hope that in relation to Indigenous offenders, Australia would make a concerted effort and particularly governments in the Northern Territory, Western Australia, Queensland, would make a concerted effort to substantially reduce the number of Indigenous offenders who are in prison because it's the highest rate in the world. It's scandalous that that's the case. And what's more scandalous is that there's not a greater commitment on the part of governments to reduce that figure. Uh, So we need to have far greater involvement by Indigenous communities in the sanction process and sentencing process for Indigenous offenders, because we know when it does happen, it works. There's a justice reinvestment program at Burke in New South Wales, which has been highly successful in reducing the number of Indigenous offenders. Why? Because it's been designed and works for and works with Indigenous communities around Burke and other areas of Western New South Wales, and and it ought to be translated across Australia. That's Greg Barnes from the Australian Lawyers Alliance. And Megan, have you seen many of these successful programs used across the country? 
There are three that come to my mind at the moment. One are the successful sobering up shelters in the Northern Territory, for example. The other is policing by Aboriginal people in Western Australia, the subject of a new documentary called Our Law, premiering at the Sydney Film Festival. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's the Great Civil Law Service for Aboriginal Communities, run by Legal Aid New South Wales, that are dealing with issues people have with the police, with finances, with scams and with funerals, for example, addressing those things before they might become complicated and end up as criminal law issues. And would you say they're not being used enough at the moment, that they should be used more broadly? That's right. There's absolute evidence to say that the need is greater than the number of services that are funded. What about juvenile justice, particularly since the Royal Commission into the Dondale Centre in the Northern Territory? The High Court has now ruled that the use of tear gas on young detainees at Dondale was illegal. Are we having progress in our juvenile justice sector? I've not heard of progress, actually. I've heard of more damaging situations for young people and I've heard of great risks for an increase in juvenile detention numbers. We've got to look at the precursor to that which is often Aboriginal young people's engagement in the out-of-home care system and those rates are rising and in New South Wales we've also had cuts to the peak body ABSEC responsible for delivering good services to support families and reduce out-of-home care rates. Someone who does work with young people, particularly young women, is Debbie Kilroy, the founder of the Sisters Inside organisation, which supports women who are or have been incarcerated. She says the conversation should be about abolition, not reform. So how do we stop the number of people being criminalised by the police, stop the number of people being remanded in custody, and how do we get people who are in prison out? And not with the reform ideas and strategies of home detention, wearing you know electronic monitors, what we call e-carceration, so that they're released out in the free world like the rest of us to get on with life. So how do you get to that conversation, though? A lot of people would hear that and just go, well, you can't do that because people have offended. They need to be punished in some way. You just can't let them go. So where would you funnel them? When people say that to me, I understand very quickly that they obviously have no idea who's actually being criminalised in prison. Because if you understand from the Law and Order campaign and who actually is being criminalised in prison, you would understand very quickly that it's ongoing colonising policies since invasion of this country and targeting First Nations people. It's targeting homeless people, people with mental illness people who come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, single mothers, women who've been severely abused, victims of horrific crime, people who are the most marginalised in our communities. That's actually who's in our prison. It's not the people that the Law and Order campaign markets through the media or the police target, the most marginalised people, and that who ends up in prison. Do you think then it's time to put in place really effective education and cultural and skills programs to try to address the needs of people who are locked up and also once they're let out so that whole cycle of being put back inside can be broken. So with recidivism, that's because you could do a program in prison, but if you are being released to exactly the same place that you were before you came into prison, you will go back and do the same thing. If you are poor, if you don't have a house, if you have mental illness and it's not being addressed, you actually will get criminalised again and put back in prison. That's where the resources must go to end poverty, 
to have the social supports in the community for our most marginalised to have those supports so that they're not criminalised in the first place or if they're released from prison, that they do have a home to go to, they do have health services, they do have access to training, employment, not where they're just dumped out the front door of a prison with a garbage bag and that's their belongings and told to move on their way. So what about changes inside prison in terms of education and skills development? Someone with an insight into what's happening is Ron Wilson, the president of the Australasian Corrections Education Association. He says COVID-19 has had one positive impact, at least, in seeing authorities open up access to online education, but that the provision of education and training varies across the states. In the recent stats that have come out about the involvement of prisoners and offenders in education programs around the state, they've shown some varying perspectives. Some of the states have got a very high percentage on vocational education and training for those in custody, with the purpose of saying that by building up the employability skills and those currency skills are where the employment options are in our community, we've got a better chance for supporting people in that transition to their community or to the community in order to get work, to be able to support lifestyle, support their families, etc. Some other states have taken a slightly different perspective and said it's the development of literacy, numeracy and digital capabilities that are really important. Queensland's actually got a so much stronger involvement with adult prisoners in the higher education sector than any other state. Is that a situation in Queensland paying off in rates of recidivism? There's bits and pieces of research in Australia that are looking at the impact of the employability skills and the gaining of these higher education skills that relate back to the reduction of reoffending. I'd have to say that our research capabilities in Australia have been really poor compared to the research that's occurred in other jurisdictions, particularly America, has got a very strong long-term study where they're tracking people through well over seven years. And their findings are saying quite strongly that the involvement in education has a significant impact on reducing reoffending rates. I know in New South Wales in the last couple of years there's been a focus away from academic education towards trades and skills. Do you think moves like that are counterproductive? My belief is very strongly that that should be a coordinated approach. Now, Victoria, New South Wales in particular, are both very heavily oriented into the vocational education training, into the trade training areas. There is some very good strategies in both states connecting releasing offenders with work in the infrastructure programs that are occurring in each of those states. But you'd like to see more research-based decisions so that you can have a, a really good look at what works, what doesn't work as far as education goes, and then roll out the effective programs throughout the system. Absolutely. If I have a bias in many ways, I think the role of education is absolutely critical to assist offenders. Well, speaking about that, we have an incredibly high incarceration rate for First Australians peoples. What about education programs that are specific for Indigenous prisoners? To me, this is a huge problem. The imprisonment rate for Indigenous people, despite the findings of the Royal Commission so many years ago, has been steadily increasing. There's been a 39% increase over the last five years of Aboriginal prisoners and a significant number of Aboriginal women in Victoria. Why? Um, Why is that? That's the question. After all of our findings from the Royal Commission, those things aren't seen to, to grab that traction. 
in saying that, there are some really important cultural programs where each of the prisons are connecting with local communities and engaging local community elders to come and work with prisoners. Well, my name is Murray Cook, and I'm the coordinator and developer of the Songbirds Arts and Music Program in New South Wales prisons. That's Murray Cook who runs the Songbird Program for prisoners in New South Wales through the Community Restorative Centre. More from him in a moment and another of the songs. But first, let's hear from Marxi. That's that artist involved in The Torch, which delivers the Indigenous Arts in Prisons and Community Program in Victoria. Thomas Marks. My people are Gunaway, Kurnai people from down East Gippsland. I started painting pretty much straight away once I got the paints and cams and brushes. Eventually, I was told that the Torch Program had workers that came and visited the Aboriginal prisoners and was told that they have exhibitions every year. So 2018, I did my first ever painting for the Torch Program and it was a poem about about my life growing up as a stolen generation person, put it in the exhibition and it actually got sold. So, yeah. Um, How does it make you feel when you're able to create those artworks? It makes me feel that I've achieved something. It kind of makes you feel like you're worth something, especially being inside prison. You're pretty much classed all the same. It makes you feel like you're worth something and you pretty much achieved something that you've never achieved before. And what inspires you when you sit down to create an artwork, to paint or to write a poem? For me, what inspires me is because I've come from a stolen generation background and it's something that I've struggled and I probably still continue to struggle with it today. And when I do a poem, I'll just sit down, take it through my head, how to put these words together. So I write it down and once I'm happy with what I've written down, I will then put it down on canvas and just do some artwork around it. And that's pretty much how I go about that. Has it been healing for you? Do you find it a healing process? Yeah, because I'm getting my story out there. A lot of people don't have an understanding of what it's like to be a stolen generation child. They just think it it never happened. So you need to get your story out there so they actually understand and yeah. Where do you think you'd be without this, without the access to the Torch program? Probably just sitting around home most of the time and not really doing much. Has it given you confidence to do other oh, yeah, things? Yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence, especially when a patent gets sold. And it's just not about the money either. I've said before, I kind of think the money is the bonus part. For me, the painting has done a lot more for me in my life. I guess when I do it, it's, it kind of helps me connect back to my uh, identity, my culture and my Aboriginality because that had that taken away from me when I was young not knowing anything about myself and, and who I was and where I was from. That really helps me connect back to, to those three things. Thomas Marksy Marks. And there's a Torch virtual exhibition on at the moment. We'll put the links in the show notes at croaky.org. From painting to music and the songbirds of the New South Wales prison system, the coordinator is Murray Cook. We were set up originally to fill the void that was left after most of the prison teachers got sacked by uh, Premier Mike Baird about four years ago. I was wondering what it's going to do in the future and uh, I got headhunted by Dr Mindy Satiri who works for Community Restorative Centre and she just had a, a Churchill Fellowship, just had come back from overseas, uh, seen some incredible programs over there in, in uh, jails in the UK and in the US, including programs run by people like Joe Strummer and Nick Jones from The Clash, Billy Bragg, and in America, Wayne Kramer from the MC5 called Jail Guitar Doors, another program in Scotland called Vox Luminous, which involved professional musicians coming in and writing songs with inmates and then performing them for their kids or their family. So um, 
I write my own program called Songbirds, yeah. We've been going for nearly uh, four years now. It's been very successful and well-liked. You know, one thing I do emphasise on the questionnaire is you don't have to be a musician to be a part of this program. You can be good with words or you can be good with rhythms. You might contribute in all sorts of different ways. You might be a good mixer, a good DJ sort of person, yeah. Give me an example of someone you've really been able to help through this and who's really got a lot out of it. Well, there's quite a few, actually. We had, on the first album, we had a guy called Anthony. He's got this most beautiful voice and he uh, is a Polynesian guy. Since he got out, he's done quite a few professional gigs, including our first album launch. And another guy, Levi, who's a rapper from Broken Hill, a young Koori rapper, he got out and he's in Sydney at the moment. He's been looked after by Community Restorative Centre because that's what we do. And he's going to do a show on our excellent jailbreak program talking about his rap. Levi's looking forward to, now he's out of jail, trying to establish a music career. Unfortunately, you know, COVID got in the way, but um, yeah, I've seen a lot of my ex-class members out busking on the street, using, still using the same sheet music. I gave them in jail, and they bet their first welfare check on a cheap guitar, and they go out there and busk, and they make good money. They make about two or three hundred bucks a night. Wow. It's a pretty good not a bad way to, to earn a living, and you don't have to go and kowtow, send a link, or be ashamed of having a criminal record in a job interview, and you just go out and do it. it it's a huge boost for their self-esteem, and say to them at the beginning of the course, your life is really valuable, even though you might seem to you very miserable. A lot of people are interested how you survive in there, you know what I mean? Like, it's quite an amazing feat that they survive in such a hideous environment, really. It's quite a, you know, dog-eat-dog dog in there. Men and women, it's rough and it's tough. The songs you get in there tend to be very much from the heart and they tend to be very genuinely expressed. A lot of people have had trouble expressing their emotions and somehow in a song it's okay to let it out, you know, without losing face in the jail system. If you show any emotion in there, you go and you know what I mean, they'll pick on you. Yes, I'm happy today I'm going back to my family Back to the Maliwell, Kenya That's my hometown There'll be cuddles and kisses all round They'll be drinking in a club hotel when you walk in, all the people, they're happy and loud I guess that's just the whole world in your way That's the hometown of my family When we pass, we'll go back the place we will stay when we pass we'll go back to the dream time way well it was yet on the me and the crew we're drinking in the park we had a garden and the movie comes That's when the night closed in Then we made our way to the Mallee That's where we sat And we partied all night I guess that's just the old Welcome way
That's music from the Songbirds Project, and that's it from Croaky Voices this time around, the second of our Justice COVID two-part special as part of a croaky news series on prisons in the time of the pandemic. You can follow us by using the hashtag JusticeCovid on Twitter and on Facebook at JusticeCovidAU. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and please visit croaky.org for all of our health stories and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you. I'm Kate Carrigan. And I'm Megan Williams.